and this was maybe around 2006, 2007. I remember I found a furniture company. I found a mortgage company. I found several banks that were trading for less than their book value. And almost all of them went out of business. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'll be your worst podcast host today. And I'm here with featured guest, Morgan Housel. Morgan, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to go. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yes. Now, let me tell the audience about you. For those people that don't know you from Twitter or The Motley Fool or other places, I'm going to tell them. Morgan Housel is a partner of the Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. He is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, winner of the New York Times Sydney Award, and a two-time finalist for the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. His book, The Psychology of Money, comes out September 8th and is available right now on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, type in The Psychology of Money, or just type in Morgan Housel, and you'll get there. Morgan, take a minute and fill in, in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, yeah, thanks again for having me, Andrew. I'm looking forward to doing this today. I currently live in Seattle. I just moved here from Washington, D.C. with my family. I've been a financial writer for my entire career. I don't consider myself a journalist. I don't consider myself an active investor. I consider myself a writer who writes about investing, who's just looking at investing history and investing psychology, trying to piece together how people think about risk, how people think about that reward, and what we can use about the history of that, the learnings from that, to become better investors, better with finances ourselves. And let me ask you a question about your writing. Do you write on a, on a sofa, at a desk, standing up, at a Starbucks? Where do you write? I write sitting down in a desk by myself in a room with the door shut and noise canceling headphones on. I need perfect peace and solitude. I can't have any distractions. Working in a coffee shop has never, ever worked for me. But something else that's interesting, but that is so important to my writing is that I can't sit in a chair for more than about five minutes before I just get too antsy. I got to get up and do something. So how I write is I usually will be walking or pacing around my office or pacing around the house, sometimes going for a walk around my neighborhood. And then I will, and that's, that's where I, I quote unquote do my writing as I'm walking around thinking. And then I go back to my desk and I sit down and I write maybe a paragraph maybe one sentence. And then I get up and I do something else. I get up and I do the dishes. I walk up the stairs. I go for a walk around. So I'm always moving and wandering around, but I also need total quiet and peace and solitude while I'm doing it. That's really, you know, helpful advice for the writers out there and the budding writers who, you know, it's a world of distraction. And, you know, the reality is, is that this type of good writing and deep work has to happen with concentration. I'm curious when you write, is it that you get an idea and you get excited about an idea and then some people, for instance, will structure an outline or do you get an idea and then you say, I'm just going to start putting down my thoughts onto, you know, on the paper? It's 100% the latter. I've never had any success whatsoever with outlining before I write. And this is maybe an area where I would disagree with the majority of writing teachers, particularly in high school and college, who will tell you, outline beforehand, you know, have your outline and then you can start writing. 
that has never worked for me because I think the process of writing is also a process of thinking. And it's not that if, if you read something from an author who you like, it's easy to maybe think intuitively that that author had all those ideas in their head and then they sat down at the computer and put them on the paper and it's never how it works. It is as you're writing, you write one sentence and that reminds you of something else. And then you start going, oh, so maybe I can, maybe, maybe that reminds me of this and I can write this about it. And then you, after you've written the paragraph, you look at it and say, oh, that reminds me of this book that I read a year ago. And so whenever I sit down to write something, I never have any idea where it's going to lead to. Definitely not how it's going to end. I usually just start with a very vague idea, almost like a gut feeling about a topic that seems like, oh, this is like, this could be something neat. I, I have this gut feeling about something like this. And I sit down and I write a sentence and it just kind of comes out from there. What's important to point out too, Andrew, is that a lot of times that same process happens, but after you've written a couple sentences or you've written a paragraph, you realize, ooh, that gut feeling that I had actually doesn't make any sense. Hmm. It was actually wrong. And that's really important too, is that the process of writing helps you crystallize your thoughts. And sometimes they get crystallized for the better. You put all these gut feelings that you had into a really useful framework. And sometimes you realize that when you put your ideas on the paper, they look ridiculous. And so it's just a really helpful process, I think, just the actual process of writing versus thinking in your head and outlining in your head before you put words on paper. That's, you know, reminds me of something that I heard you say on a podcast, which was the idea, I think you, you quoted Mark Twain, but the idea being that, you know, the best thing that you can do for a writer is throw out, you know, what they're going to skip type of thing. And I'm just curious, you know, you know, one of the things about writing that's so hard is that, you know, you put a lot of effort into each one of those paragraphs, but I'm just curious, like in that context, how many drafts do you write when you write a a blog post or, or, you know, an article or something like that? Not, not, let's not talk about a book, but let's just say a piece of writing. How many times do you, you know, rewrite it and draft it and sorry, edit it and kind of say, okay, I've got to, I've got to delete that. I've got to fix that. Well, my process, and I don't know if this is ideal, I'm not recommending other people do this, but how I've always done it is I spend a tremendous amount of time on every paragraph, but by the time I'm done with that paragraph, that's what's getting published. So there's almost no, like I get to the end of the article and then I go back to the top and start editing. I do very, very little of that. I do some, but not very much. Most of it is, okay, let's really work on this paragraph or this sentence. And let's sit here and stare at this sentence until, until I really got it to, it's like, okay, that, that's how I want it. Now I can move on. So rather than, you know, getting out a dirty draft and then cleaning it up and then doing another pass and making it better. I'm much more of, let's just go through this line by line as I'm writing it. Again, I, I, that's probably not ideal. It's, mm. it's for whatever reason, that's how I, I've always done it. But mine is rather than getting a quick first draft out, I'd rather just spend a lot of time on every sentence before I move on. I appreciate all this. I mean, I ask very selfishly because I am only an author. I am not a writer. So it's very interesting to talk with a writer and I appreciate learning from well, you I'm, I'm, on that. I'm very curious now, what, how would you distinguish the two? So what I would say is that a writer takes, you know, well, the easiest way to say it is to say a writer writes often an mm-hmm. author writes when needed. So a good example of a good friend of mine, Andrew Biggs here in Thailand, he's written many books and he and I took a, we convinced ourselves to go do a seven day detox on an island in Thailand many years ago. And one day I walked into his, you know, I knocked on his door in the morning and we had a morning coffee in his room and we were just chatting. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I've been writing in my journal for the last hour. 
And I was like, what? I would never sit down and just write for pleasure. Yeah. And that was when I realized, you know, I mean, I have a few books that I've written and published and all that, but they were a chore. They were hard. They were a huge process. And, you know, I know that a book is hard for everybody, but the process of writing is not what I would do in my free time. And so I guess the easiest way to distinguish if someone is a writer versus an author is just that, do they write often? That's interesting. You know what that reminds me of? I remember Jerry Seinfeld saying he was discussing the difference between a comedian and a comic. And it was almost exactly the same as you just outlined there. He said, a comedian is someone who is a funny person and they come up with a skit and they can give that skit on stage. A lot of people can be comedians, whether they are, maybe they're actors or they're just funny people. It may, they do it as their, their hobby on the weekends, but a comic if you are a real comic, you cannot think about the world through any other lens than comedy. And when you go to the grocery store, when you're washing your car, when you're putting on your pants in the morning, you're always trying to think of a joke. And that was his, his distinction between a comedian and a comic. And I love that like really subtle distinction. And maybe that's yeah. the same as the difference between a writer and an author. Yeah, I think so. Well, I just want to ask you one, one last question before we get into the question of the podcast. And that's about the book, The Psychology of Money. My question to you is not so much about what's in the book, because I think we're going to learn about that, you know, and particularly when we buy it or get it online or listen to it. And also, I know I saw that there was a CFA sponsored webinar coming up that looked like it was available for members and non-members. So I'll be sure to put that in the show notes for all the listeners that are my CFA friends, but also non-CFA friends, you'll be able to sign up and listen more about the book. But my question is, why did you write this book? So during my 13 or so years as a financial columnist, it just always became more apparent to me. And it took a while for me to get this, but once I got it and looked back and thought, okay, this is kind of the central theme of what I've seen over 13 years, was that doing well financially was not about how smart you were. It wasn't how educated you were, how good you were at math, how sophisticated your financial forecasting models were. It didn't matter whether you went to Goldman Sachs, didn't matter whether you went to Harvard, all that mattered, what mattered more than any of that was your behavior. It was your relationship with greed and fear and your ability to take a long-term mindset and who you trust, who you seek information from, all these things that are not associated with what we, what we normally think of as intelligence, book intelligence, academic intelligence. That is typically how we think about, about finance. And one way that I write about this in the book, Andrew, is just saying that Look, there are people with no financial education, no background, no college education, no financial experience, no financial training, who can perform vastly better at investing than people who have the best financial education, the best financial background, the best training, the best resources. And that does not happen in any other field. There's no other field where someone with no education can massively outperform someone who has the best education, but it happens in finance. And I think the reason that it happens is because what really matters in finance and in investing is just how you behave. And if you can master your relationship with greed and fear, and if you can truly take a long-term mindset, you don't need to know all the fancy details that are typically taught in investing and that are typically utilized by investing professionals. So just really having a better understanding and grasp over the psychology of money was for me has been the key takeaway after researching and writing the big broad topic of investing over the last 13 years. Fantastic. And that really opens up, you know, that's one of the reasons why the book, you know, I, I believe is going to be very popular because what you're doing is opening up to a broader audience to say, 
you know, unlike most other professions, this is one where you as an individual could potentially develop a competitive advantage. So put aside some of the things that you see about the fancy fund managers and all that stuff and get down to the psychology. (laughs) That's exactly it. Exciting. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So Andrew, one of the first investing books that I ever read was The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, which was written, the first edition I believe was written in the 1930s. He updated it several times where the most recent edition was published in the 1970s. So even the later editions, this is a a book that's 50 some odd years old at least. And Graham, who is of course one of the greatest investors of all time, he is Warren Buffett's early mentor, writes in the book about all these practical strategies that you can use to invest, to pick stocks with. And one of them that he goes into detail about is buying stocks for less than book value. So just to unpack that a little bit, you calculate what a business is worth, its assets minus its liabilities, that can give you the book value of the company, just the value of its assets and everything that it has. If you can buy a stock for less than that, that value, if a company is worth a million dollars and you can buy its stock at the point where the company is worth, let's say 800,000, you are making a good investment because you're buying the stock for less than the company's worth. So I, after reading that, that strategy from Benjamin Graham, and he lays out the exact formulas of what you need to do to do this and why it makes so much sense, I started doing that. I started looking for companies that were trading for less than their book value. And this was maybe around 2006, 2007. I remember I found a furniture company. I found a mortgage company. I found several banks that were trading for less than their book value. And almost all of them went out of business. It it, it wasn't that I did not do well in these companies. It was that they just went poof. They vanished and went to zero. And as I started looking into this, it was it, hey, did I get unlucky? Did, did I f- not follow Benjamin Graham's advice correctly? What happened here? And I think the biggest answer for why this happened is the world changed since the 1970s. It was true that in the 1970s or the 1950s and 1940s, that stocks trading for less than their book value were probably good investments. That was true back then. And then things changed over time. There are more investors looking for these opportunities. So mispricings are less common than they have been in the past. The accounting rules have changed. All these different things have changed so that when you find a company trading for less than its book value today, the odds are it is trading that way because it's going out of business, which was not the case in Benjamin Graham's day. So the big lesson from that, the takeaway for me from that is that things change over time. We cannot, investing is not like physics where, you know, the laws of gravity were the exact same in Newton's days and they are in our days. And the formulas that Isaac Newton came up with were, you know, the exact same formulas that we use today. It's not like that at all. Things change and evolve over time and things that used to work, formulas that used to work, philosophies that used to be valid can evolve over time to get to the point where they don't work anymore. Mm. And we have to grasp that as investors and become very humble when we're learning about the history of investing, that what worked in one era might not work in another. And when you think about those terms, to me, it's really pushed me towards the very few laws of investing. There are not many laws of investing, but the few that there are can be really important. And everything else outside of those handful of laws of investing is subject to change over time. And that we need to be kind of having more of an open mind as investors than we would have if we were, say, physicists or chemists who are really focusing on the immutable truths of how the world works. So tell me what, what were the lessons, if you were to, to list them out, 
what are the lessons that you learned? Keeping in mind, you know, there's probably some young man or woman out there thinking that they're getting great deals in some, you know, you know, low book value, you know, low price to book value opportunities. The broadest lesson for me here, Andrew, was you have to ask when you're looking at a stock that you think is cheap, you have to be able to honestly answer the question, why is it cheap? You can't just say, well, the world is giving me an opportunity on a platter for no reason whatsoever. That's not the case. If a stock is cheap, you need to know why it's cheap. And in my view, 99% of the time, the reason that it's stock is cheap is because it's actually a poor business. It's actually, it's not performing well. It deserves to be cheap because it's burning money. It has huge liabilities, whatever it is. And of course, opportunities do exist where good companies suddenly get cheap. You know, if we can say this in hindsight, in March of March of this year, a lot of good companies, you know, fell 70% and they've since rebounded, gained all their value back. But we usually only know that in hindsight. It's usually that in any given moment, companies that look cheap are cheap for a reason. So when you find what you think is an opportunity, you have to look yourself in the mirror and be able to answer as honestly as you can, what is the thing that is making this company cheap? And if that thing, whatever is making it cheap, still fits within your investing framework and philosophy, then great. But I think the more honest you are with yourself about that question, the more often you will look at a company and say, well, maybe this is actually cheap for a reason. Hmm. Great, great learning. Let me summarize some of the things that I took away from it. One of the things I wanted to describe about that book value thing a little bit more because some of the listeners may not know it in detail. And the best way to describe it is, One of my investments in Thailand is a coffee factory with my best friend, Dale, called Coffee Works. And basically, it's a roasting factory. Those are our assets. Let's just say we have green beans that are our raw materials. They're our inventory. We have some accounts receivable for customers that owe us money. And then we have the long-term assets of the business, which are the roasting machine, which is a huge 60-kilo roasting machine, as an example. Those are our assets. Let's just say that we don't owe anybody any money and therefore we finance it all with equity. Let's imagine that that equity that we put into the company is 100. So now if somebody could come along and buy those existing assets at 50, when, and we know that they're actually worth 100 right now, well, they would be getting a steal of a deal for those existing assets. But why, you know, what, what we learn about price to book is that over the years, price to book tends to average about roughly two times. So not, not lower than, but actually higher than on average, people will pay maybe 200 for 100 in the existing assets of the business. And why is that? That one additional amount that they're willing to pay over it is because, well, Coffee Works has a brand. Coffee Works has an operating system. Coffee Works has a, a marketing structure, a sales system, and they believe that this business can generate more profit in the future. And that future profit is what they're betting on. So when you see a company that's trading at a price to book that's lower than the book value, it means the market's telling you not only is there no future value to any, you know, there's no value to any future profit, it could even be that the existing assets are potentially impaired. Now, it's not always the case, but that's the concept of, of book value. Did I describe that right? I think that's perfect. And that, and that is really my lesson is that when it is trading for less than book value, there's usually a reason that the market is trying to tell you something. Yep. The second thing that I take away is, is also, particularly when we're young, we go into investing. This is something I learned from the podcast is that what I would recommend for people to do is separate their, their work on what I would call their investment strategy and their risk strategy. 
So here you have an investment strategy that you said, okay, I'm going to buy these particular types of stocks based upon this particular ratio or this particular methodology. But what, what is missing and what I would highlight is that what's missing is risk management in this case. And so what I always say is, you know, do all the fun work on what's your strategy, but then you stop and then you say, okay, now let's talk about my risk management. And this means how I basically assess the risk and manage the risk. And so if someone was to employ such a strategy right now, it's possible that they could be successful in it. But what I would say is that you may want to say, well, I'm going to put a stop loss. If I buy that company at a hundred and it goes down to 75 or 80, I'm going to get out. I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm just going to get out. So that's an example of a risk management strategy that a lot of people miss when they go into whatever strategy it is that they want to invest in. And there's a couple of other things that I took away from it. You mentioned about the laws and finance. And, you know, one of the things I teach in my courses and, and also write about in my, my book, Nine Valuation Mistakes and How to Avoid Them, is that, you know, finance is such a flimsy field of study. You know, we have the capital asset pricing model. Hey, wait a minute. It's not even a, it's not even a theory. It's not even a, a law. It's just a model or right. the modern portfolio theory. Okay, it's a theory, but it's definitely not a law. We have the, you know, all kinds of different theories, hypotheses and stuff, but we do not really have any laws except for maybe the, the law that we have no law. But I'm curious, you mentioned about laws of investing. So the first thing I would say, my big takeaway from that is just to remember that finance is built on quicksand and get comfortable with that. You know, as I tell my students, totally if, you, if you leave my finance course feeling less confident than I have succeeded. So those are some of the takeaways I have. Anything you'd add? That's great advice. You've really nailed it. And you know, for me, I think this is true for a lot of investors. The more experience that I gain, the more years that I've been thinking about this, the less confidence that I have in a lot of things. And not in a way that leaves me frustrated or leaves me feeling like I'm out of control, but almost like in an empowering way of, look, if I have less confidence about knowing what the economy is going to do over the next year, then I'm, going to not, I'm not going to put any more effort into that because I'm not confident that I'm ever going to have any ability to know what GDP is going to do two quarters from now. So I'm not going to put any effort in. And now, great. Now that I don't have to think about that, I can go do something else. So there's almost this way where the, the humility that you gain from experience makes investing easier and more exciting to do because you realize that it doesn't have to be as hands-on and as laborious as you once thought it was. And, you know, I have one other question I, I just was kind of dying to ask you after listening and, and reading what you talk about. And that, you know, you talk pretty openly about your investment strategy and you talk about, you know, the, the benefits of passive investing and, you know, leaving it alone. But you also talk about the idea that, you know, personal investing is in fact personal and that you may decide to have a large amount of cash or you may decide to have a large amount of bonds or something like that. I'm just curious, I had a question from one of my students in my online course about investing. And he said, well, Andrew, you recommend, you know, some little, little blending in a little bit of bonds, but mainly being exposed to the stock market, particularly from when you're a young age, so that you can really let that compound over time. So my question to you, Andrew, the guy asked me was, why don't I just own only a passive ETF? Why do I need to blend in bonds when, when I don't need a bond exposure until, you know, I'm 60, let's say, where it really matters. So I just, 
I have my answer to that question, but I'm just curious how you think about that, particularly given the fact that you, you know, have talked before about, you know, the comfort of being able to sleep at night because of cash and all that. I think what's really important is to look at your past behavior. And ideally, if you don't have any yet, then it's really hard to answer this question. But if you have been an investor for the last 10 years, let's say, or 15 years, then you just need to look at how did you respond in March of 2020? And how did you respond in 2008? And that past behavior is going to be the best indication of your future behavior. So if you are an investor who during those periods of major market decline, you were able to keep your head on straight, you were able to keep your wits about you and you didn't sell, you didn't panic, everything was okay. Then maybe you are that kind of person for whom, you know, you can have a major portion of your net worth in equities. And if you're young, maybe it's 100% or something about that in your investing portfolio, leaving aside any sort of emergency funds that you might have. But if you are someone who, let's say you didn't even sell, let's say you, you didn't actually panic, but it really made you feel bad. You really looked at it and said, this really hurts. I don't like this. I'm going to put more of my assets into bonds or cash, not because I'm, I'm pessimistic about the stock market, just because I want to have a blunted ride on the way there. And I think what is important is that if the bonds and the cash that you do own prevent you from selling the stocks that you own, that is going to let the stocks that you do own compound over time to the greatest degree. So there's a sense of like when I have my asset allocation, that is, you know, of my total net worth, let's say it's something like 30% cash. That's probably roughly, you know, that's probably roughly right. That's not because I'm pessimistic about the stock market. It's because I'm so optimistic about the stock market that I want to make sure that the stocks that I do own, I can, I can leave alone forever. And there's never going to be a moment, whenever it is, whether it's a job loss, a major expense, go down the list of the, the things that happen to people in life. I want to make sure that there's almost no chance that I'm ever going to be forced to sell the stocks that I own so that they can compound over time. Charlie Munger has a great quote that I love where he says, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. <laughs> uh, and that, that to me, I think is, that is kind of the basis of asset allocation. You should have the exact amount of cash and bonds that you need to ensure that you're going to leave your stocks alone for the longest period of time. I was just teaching about compound interest to a group of beginners in Thailand here yesterday. So I'm going to have to go grab that quote because I love it. I think about what you describe. I kind of think about a life vest. You go off of a, you know, you fall off of a ship, you're out in the ocean. Well, the life vest not going to make sure, it's not going to guarantee you're going to survive. But man, when those big waves come, this thing's going to keep you float. And hopefully it's going to allow you then to live another day to then get to the shore. So yeah, That's right. great, great Absolutely. way. All right. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continued to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Try to become more attuned with your own behaviors, your own ability to be swayed by new ideas, new opinions. Try to go to become more attuned with your own risk tolerances, your own comfort zones, your own ability to sleep well at night. As you mentioned earlier, one of my favorite quotes is that personal finance is more personal than it is finance. And as I think people you know, move away from the finance textbooks that are, are written to apply to everyone and just think about their own goals, their own personalities, their own philosophies about money, that you can start making better decisions that way. It's less about the intelligence that you know, the formulas that you know, and more just about becoming attuned with yourself and your own goals. Fantastic. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, Andrew, my, my book, The Psychology of Money, is coming out in three weeks. My, my first real book, let's say. And I'm, I'm hopeful for it. You know, I guess my goal is to do two things successfully, which is keep my expectations low while hoping for the best. 
And I think that's, you know, most books don't do well, but I'm also feel as every author does, hopefully feels pretty good about their book. So if I can hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, that's my goal over the next months in terms of managing my expectations. Well, I see a little sign on my Amazon here that says, number one, new release. So I think you're on your way. I think you're on your way. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Morgan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave because when I ask most people to come on the show, they say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. So you've now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? My only parting words, Andrew, would be that we're going to look back at 2020 as I think one of the worst years in modern history by any measure, but we're also going to look at it as a turning point of new innovation, new technology, new problems that are being solved faster and to a greater degree than we've done in years or maybe decades. So there's a little bit of optimism that we can take out of this awful year so far. We're going to grab that optimism and go with it. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host for the day, saying, I'll see you on the upside.